Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 26 with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Aaron Galvin, Luxury Living Chicago Realty. Great. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Our second Skype guest. Se- second remote session. My pleasure. Looking, looking forward to it. Yeah. And who do we owe the, the pleasure for the introduction? Uh, she's in blanking. Sabrina? No. No, well, Sabrina works for, for Aaron. Our interior designer. Uh, Jesus. Devin? Devin. Yeah. De- 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 Devin <laughs> Wegman of Devin Grace Interior. Yeah. Yes. Shout out to Devin. Devin is one of our partners here in Chicago, super talented young designer, and, and we love working with her. Yeah, we had a great podcast with her a couple of weeks ago, and she referred us to you as the, the go-to guy for selling apartments and condos in Chicago. So we wanted to kind of pick your brain and welcome. And then we talked to Sabrina, who does some, some yeah. PR work for you guys. You're yeah. the first guest who has PR people. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sabrina's great as well. Yeah. Do that or... <laughs> so tell us about your firm, you know, who you are, how you get into real estate, kind of the general background. Sure. So, so the name of our firm is called Luxury Living Chicago Realty. We are a, what I would refer to as a development-focused brokerage, working with really two different audiences of people in the multifamily apartment space. So that first audience is people who are looking for apartments in downtown Chicago. So, you know, downtown Chicago has a tremendous number of brand new full amenity high-rise buildings and really has in the entire part of, you know, the 12-year history of luxury living Chicago and my 16-year career. The other piece of, of what we do is we work directly with developers to plan and execute marketing and leasing strategy. So that, that's become really the, the bigger part of our business over the last six years with the proliferation of brand new buildings that have hit downtown Chicago and really hit all the different parts of the country. We get the true renter's perspective that we're able to layer into the development work that we do. You know, We work with people very early on in the cycle of when they're looking at development deals, looking at pieces of land and trying to decide if, if an apartment building or a condo building will work there, what kind of units they want to put in there. We're talking about you know, studios, one bedroom, two bedroom, what's going to be the best fit for that demographic. We do a lot with marketing. So we have a full comprehensive digital and and full service marketing portion of our business where we will do branding and creative services. We create logos, we do identity suites, we build websites. And then that all translates into planning and executing those lease up strategies. Where in a typical world, Within the apartment space, you've seen that people hire a property management company. Typically, in some of the larger scale buildings, you'll have a property management company on site, and they'll have a team of people that's managing the property, and then they're also leasing the property. In our world, what we do is we work with developers, we work with capital partners, and we partner with property management companies where the property management companies are actually managing day-to-day operations. So they're handling tenant requests, they're coordinating move-ins, they're working on long-term profitability, if you will, for those assets. And we're charged with creating the marketing strategy and actually staffing the buildings to be able to lease up those apartments. It's a very different kind of model. One of the only other places that it actually exists is in New York City. We started this part of the model about six years ago and have been able to establish 
about 40% market share of all the new construction leasing that's happening in Chicago. So we've really, we've really carved out a niche within, within this space. We think it provides an incremental value to developers, especially in lease up. And we're looking to you know, continue to grow that certainly in Chicago and, and on a national basis. What's the smallest building you will take on or do you typically work in? So, you know, we have done everything from a nine-unit building and we're about to launch a 698-unit building. So it really, you know, spans the gamut. Our sweet spot up to this point was really in kind of that, we'll call it 100 to 250-unit building, in large part because there really wasn't anyone else who was providing the highest level of service in that asset class. It's really challenging from a budget standpoint to have enough staff enough people to handle the amount of demand that comes with what is oftentimes new construction, especially in that lease-up world where that building is first coming online. So that's really where we've been able to carve out that niche and just provide a, a higher level of service, which is really the foundation of what luxury living was built on. When we started this, it was about providing a higher level service experience for those who were seeking luxury apartments because it just didn't exist in the marketplace. And I think you know, going all the way back to 2007 and even 2003 when I started in the business, it was all condos, all sale, all the time. Because if you remember the mid 2000s, before the world changed in 2008, this was a, a condo purchase world and apartments were second fiddle. That is no longer the case. That, that the cachet or the stigma, if you will, from renting is, is long gone. And we've been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And that's how we've been able to, to carve out this niche. Yeah. Amen to that. One question, a big feature of a pro forma when we're underwriting a rental deal is lease up. So assumptions around how long we're going to hold it for before we reach full occupancy. Can you talk a little bit about those timelines, maybe when you start marketing uh, as the new construction is evolving and how long you usually figure until you can have a building stabilized? That's a great question. That's where we provide the most value. It is about the strategic way in which we're going to lease up that building when marketing starts and when we can ultimately plan for stabilization. My sense is that it starts the moment that you are thinking about building an apartment building. <laughs> so, so the sooner that we can get involved, the better because we can, we can identify things that developers and architects aren't necessarily thinking about as they're planning those, those buildings. But pragmatically speaking, what we find is that as soon as a building starts construction and you're actually you know, moving dirt and, and you know, in, for the most part, inconveniencing people around the area, it's really important to start that messaging so that the neighborhood can become an advocate in what you're actually building to better that neighborhood. So we believe that you know, as soon as you start construction, the ideal, the ideal setup is that you actually have signage on the property that's driving to a what we refer to as a pre-launch page mm -hmm. or a splash page to be able to gather information on interested stakeholders in that deal. Um, because there's, there's a number of different audiences that are interested when you start building an apartment building. Certainly, prospective renters are one of them. The neighborhood's another. The media is yet another. And then there are just people that are interested in real estate that are going to become, again, you know, social media advocates evangelizing what you're building there. So we have a pretty structured program in the way that we roll out that part of it. We refer to it as our, our awareness phase. 
and then the nurturing campaigns that go on throughout that, you know, we'll call it six month to a year, ideally two year period to get to where we refer to as the pre-launch phase. That pre-launch phase is, is equally as important. You know, hopefully you've been having conversations with the, the interested parties and the stakeholders along the way. And you're now able to create some sort of environment where you're going to give VIP access to people who want to actually engage in that apartment. People love behind the scenes looks. They love seeing construction happening. You know, we live in this HGTV million dollar listing world where, you know, there's a real interest in residential real estate. And when you can help people be a part of that story that's going to become their story early on, you're going to get them very early. And that's really important in, in a compelling way. So we will create the right kinds of questions within that VIP form. We've created many different programs for how we can execute that VIP launch strategy to the extent that our goal is to be able to pre-lease at least 25% of a building before it opens. And we've been able to achieve upwards of 100% of pre-leasing if if executed the right way and done with the, the, an aligned strategy. So, and then, you know, from a stabilization standpoint, it's going to depend on the goals of the developer. I think that that's one of the most important things that we look at in, and it's one of the first things that I mentioned when I first talk, first start talking to developers is that we are trying to align renter insights to maximize your goals and understanding your client's goals when they're looking at these properties is of the utmost importance because this is going to ebb and flow throughout different cycles. You have merchant builders who want to lease up as fast as possible and, and, you know, offer max concessions and get out. You have longtime holders who, you know, speed is not quite as important, but they really want to maximize those rents and manage concessions really well and make sure they have the right tenants that are going to be more likely to stay. And that's going to dictate unit mix. So understanding those developer goals is, is really, really crucial. And, and we've been able to adapt our business to have different kinds of lease up services to, to match the, the goals of our developer clients. So what's your, I guess, pricing model look like compared to a, a typical broker? You know, just because, you know, a lot of the times, you, you know, if you're getting, if you have a broker that's leasing up an apartment building or, or, you know, they're getting paid after every, you know, unit is leased versus, you know, you're getting involved so early in the process that, you know, these units might not get leased for, you know, five plus years, potentially, depending on planning and zoning and building, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how does that play into your model? So great question as well. We have a, a proven process for working with these developers, and we recognize that there is a tremendous cycle in terms of how this can go on. It typically is probably three to four years from inception all the way to stabilization at, at a minimum. We've done projects where it's been as long as seven or eight years, and we've gotten involved six months or three months before the, the building was leasing up. Within our proven process, we want to, again, get those goals. We have a discovery meeting. We really want to understand what that timeline looks like. And then we have specific products created depending on where you are in that development process. So we will have a pre-development analysis where we'll look at you know, the piece of land and determine, are, you know, is this feasible? What's the ideal unit mix? What can we really expect from the market? And what are some of the, the, the best, newest amenities and service offerings that people are seeing in the buildings? So you can think ahead to three years. We have a pre-launch analysis. And, again, and that happens typically after 
an architect's been pretty involved. They've gotten floor plans to a to a pretty good point where they're, you know, we'll call it 85, 90% there. And some small adjustments will help maximize rent by by X amount more. It's at that time where we look at those floor plans, we do a pretty extensive comp study, and then we start talking about what it looks like to work with us as your, your full-time partner throughout the process. We then talk about our different strategic services, but it's really being that, that additional resource that's accretive to the process that they wouldn't have thought of otherwise. You know you have to have an architect. You know you have to have a construction company. You know you have to have a property management company, but how do you add on that extra element to get just that much more rent. So we've been we've had the benefit of being on, you know, a number of different projects for many years to help make those kinds of decisions. We have branding and creative services that's more of a package relationship where we will, you know, depending on the size and scale of the property, we will, you know, help create a logo and identity and website and, and those sorts of pieces and then translate it into that marketing tools. We've also joined where somebody else has done the the naming and then we just come in and help kind of do those nurturing campaigns through the pre-launch. And then, you know, what we refer to as the big lease-up is our brokerage-enhanced lease-up model. The way we structure that is that we look at the overall gross revenue that you're looking at. On that, we're trying to come up with a number that is feasible that would compare to how you would do it in a traditional property management-led lease-up, whether that is a vertically integrated property management lease-up or that is, you know, hiring a third party. There are so many different costs that go into leasing up a building you know, the big ticket ones being staffing, co-op broker commissions, marketing, and then ultimately the velocity and how that impacts occupancy. So, you know, what we try to do is get a project to a point where what it costs to use our service is the same or less than it would cost if you did it in a traditional sense. And we've been able to accomplish that many times over uh, to be able to prove out this model. And that's why we continue to get the business that we do because we get it rented faster, we get the higher rents, and we do it with a proven process that takes a tremendous amount of bandwidth off of the developer. And they know when they hire us for marketing and leasing that that piece is taken care of. You mentioned something earlier. You said something about, I think it was identity suite. You create some marketing around that. Can you talk a little bit more just about that term? I'd never heard that before. Yeah. So, I mean, what we're referring to as identity suite is the the process behind creating a name, logo, messaging, imagery, and aesthetic for an actual development. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought, I thought it was around a particular room or a room type. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're, talking, we're talking about naming and, and, webs and, uh, and, and logo design, which, you know, I think, again, it's something that as we've been in this, you know, smaller building, we'll call it boutique and, and medium-sized building niche that they hadn't always thought about before. But what you have to realize about the renter and the way that the digital landscape is working and how people search for apartments is that whether it is a 700-unit building or a 50-unit building, you may have the same person looking at both of those because they're attracted to the floor plan. They're attracted to a neighborhood. They're attracted to the level of finish within the apartment building. And either way, regardless of the size and scale of the building, you have to be able to compete. So that's the, the opportunity that we've been able to create in the market is that, listen, like we know what the renter is looking at. You'd be amazed at how renters work and really how the consumer works today. And in order to be able to capture the hearts and minds of a consumer, you have to have really, really buttoned up marketing. I think the best example that, that I use pretty often is I would say, you know, we live in an Amazon world. 
where everybody expects one click. And we live in a world where Instagram really matters, right? I mean, people are going on Instagram before they're going on people's websites to really understand, you know, do they fit within the lifestyle of that building? So those sorts of things are very, very important for everybody who's trying to, to lease apartments, whether it's a 10-unit building or a, or a 700-unit building. And I think we really pay very close attention to that because that, that renter is, a, is, is tough to nail down. You know, it typically takes about... I think I, there's a statistic out there that in like 20 years ago, the average attention span for a human, I believe, was like 12 seconds. And now our average attention span is like six seconds. A goldfish's attention span is seven. Yeah, so yeah. We, can't, we can't focus on anything. <laughs> so you've got to be able to capture them. And really good looking marketing will help with that. Yeah, I, th- I think I've heard something about like commercials in general. I think the f- most relatable is like car commercials, how many cuts they have. And it's just, it's almost like a uh, music video now, you know, they just get more and more insane. So yeah, you have to, our, I guess our future generations, us and the kids coming out of school now, just, we all have ADD. I mean, yeah. I can, I, I can tell you, I can tell you, I have, I have a 10 and a seven year old daughter. And if you try to show them a movie that like we grew up with, like, Try, try to show a 10-year-old kid Hoosiers. Yeah. And, which is, <laughs> which is like... Which is amazing. You know, movie. great yeah. movie, right? Yeah. The first 20 minutes are so boring to them yeah. because nothing <laughs> happened. Yeah. You, you just... And, and that's real. And that, that's real for this demographic that's running these apartments now. And it's real for this Generation Z that's coming up after us that like you have to capture them so quickly and you've got to be able to adjust and, and do things that are going to be able to, to meet different audiences the same way that we have rented apartments, the same way that we have sold product in the society is changing and is going to continue to change. And we're trying to be at the cutting edge of that. Sure. And one other question that I would have is, you've kind of mentioned it already, that the stigma of an apartment is is past us. It's the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, you don't want to rent. But obviously, through both market changes and things getting better just in general with construction... Do you think that, and because housing affordability is obviously an option, do you think that the demand has shifted that, and I guess maybe another aspect of it is people just don't want to own things because they want to be more mobile. Uh, Talking about this whole attention, lack of attention to anything, people don't want to settle down anywhere. So do you think that apartments will continue to be dominant and that will just continue to grow overall as a trend? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You nailed it. People want that mobility. Nobody who's certainly in that younger generation really wants to own anything. They want to rent their clothing. They want to rent their, you know, they don't want to own a car. They don't want to do any of that. So that, that renter mindset is very much here. And I think that, listen, there, there is a place for home ownership in this country. There's no question about it. I own my home. I own investment property. I think that there's definitely a place for that. And I think the, the home ownership will continue to ebb and flow as different economic cycles happen, but that's still the American dream. And I think people really want to work towards that. And there's a real value in home ownership. I think what renting does is it allows us to have that mobility. It allows you to try different things and allows us to have different dynamic life experiences. Back when I was, was a broker and, and that was my roots and I you know, was starting in this business, I would have conversations with people and I would say, listen, I'm, you know, they would be calling from a house or they would you moving from another city. And my, my line to them was really, listen, if you have an opportunity to live in a major metropolitan city 
and experience what it's like to live in a full amenity building and have everything that comes along with that in the apartment, in the building, right outside your door, you have to do that at least once in your life. And, and that really resonated with people. And I think what you're seeing now is because there are not so many condo options and the kind of options that are out there, at least in Chicago, are uber expensive options or they are you know, 15 years old and need a lot of work that we used to get the person at the end of their rental cycle. And that rental cycle has just continued on and on. And they're moving into newer and nicer buildings in multiple different neighborhoods around Chicago. Um, and I think that's happening from, from what I understand around the country as well, that as the apartment market continues to grow, that there are so many different neighborhoods that bring up that give people the opportunity to live in different neighborhoods within their city and different excerpts, if you will. Basically, what you're saying is, you know, in the past, you might have people coming right out of school and renting for three to five years before they buy their first condo or buy their first home. Now, you mo- you know, it could be seven to 10 years before someone kind of takes that next step into home ownership. So it's basically extending that that lifespan. So, but something that you something that you mentioned before is that there's more and more apartments and you know something that Devin mentioned was a condo deconversion process and that's very unfamiliar uncharted territory here in Boston so can you talk a little bit about what's going on with that that process or what that process is and and what people what developers are are doing sure so condo deconversions are a relatively new phenomenon within Chicago So it really started in Florida when you had a huge oversupply of condos that were built in Florida and apartments that converted to condos during the the prime years in the mid-2000s. So what happens in a condo deconversion is that you have to get a certain percentage of the condo associate, of of the people who live there, the owners, through the condo association to agree to a bulk sale price where one investor is coming in and buying all of those condos and then converting them back into an apartment building. This has happened more often in buildings that were originally apartment buildings, converted to condos because that's where the cycle was in the mid-2000s, and are now converting back to apartments because they are worth more as apartments than they are as condos. Some of the factors are how many renters are actually in those condo buildings, right? The shadow condo apartment market. And typically you're seeing in these buildings upwards of 50 to 60% of the units are already rented out to renters and it's investment property for condo owners. You're also seeing this work really well on properties that have smaller unit sizes. So studios, one bedrooms, and you know a small amount of two bedrooms that quite honestly, probably should have never been condos, should have always stayed apartments. And that's, that's a recipe for success there too. And the third is that it has to be in a prime location. And that prime location is probably one of the most important aspects to why condo deconversions have been successful in Chicago and, and I believe can be successful in certain markets around the country. Um, although Chicago kind of has a unique landscape for, for something like this in that the replacement cost to build new in the kinds of locations where these condo buildings that are getting converted are is is astronomical. So you you know it is much less expensive to figure out how to manage this deconversion, get it done, which is a tremendous, tremendous endeavor that can often take one to two years. And you can imagine you have to convince sometimes 200 different people to, to sell their condo. 
Yeah, it must make for some interesting uh, meetings. Yeah. That must make for some interesting kind of building. Yeah, so we're not involved in that yeah. portion of things too much because <laughs> that, that, would be a full, that would be a full-time job unto itself, but we understand it. And then, you know, the play is how much do you renovate, right? I mean, you renovate these to a very high standard to compete with the rest of the apartments out there. We're trying to prove a model and really be able to raise a price per square foot that individual condo owners were renting up to, you know, what can be the, the high end of if we fully renovate these units and then leaving a little bit of, of value in the project to be able to sell to, to the next investor. And I think that, you know, if it, what, what this is actually doing within Chicago that is somewhat of an unintended consequence, but, but really helpful is that it's created a market where it couldn't exist otherwise for attainable rents within Chicago. Everything that's getting built right now is very high-end, uber luxury, because construction costs are so high, and it doesn't make any sense to build anything other than that. Or you have to build like really tiny micro-apartments. There's certainly a place for that as well, but that's, you know, that's more of a, a niche audience than kind of the standard 800 to 900 square foot one-bedroom apartment in a prime location that a lot of people want to live in. And, and that, that's been what has been so attractive about these condo deconversions that we've been able to create a market that, that wasn't going to exist otherwise and hopefully can continue to, to proliferate. The challenge is that we, you know, Chicago is a very politically driven environment. And the aldermen lately have passed a new ordinance that moved the, the limit where you had to get 75% of the condo owners to agree to do this. They've now moved this to 85%. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So that's going to be a re- that just happened a couple of weeks ago. That's how Chicago works. If, if the aldermen want to do it. So their rules, their rules, the aldermen's rules over, override and supersede the condo trust documents. The alderman rules oversee, override the condo trust documents. The alderman rules over, supersede the state requirement. Wow. This was oh. a state law that was 75% that they've been able to, to overturn now. Um, and it's happening like next week. So there's a hmm. rush to get some of these deals done. Uh, there's some different things that are happening. But this has been a, an interesting journey as we've gotten involved because we've handled two of the largest kind of deconversions in Chicago so far. Uh, we have a couple others that we're working on right now. And, and this is, this is you know, attainable housing for people in prime locations. We want to continue to see that so everybody can, can you know, afford to live in, in downtown Chicago and experience everything that we have here. It's interesting. I wonder what the political pressures are on the aldermen to cause them to increase that percent. I suspect, and correct me here, uh, but that the people who are in favor are the investors who own rental units within, who rent their condominiums within those buildings. And typically the owner occupants are the ones who might be more against. And so the aldermen are trying to side with owner occupants over real estate investors. Voters versus. It's, ac- it's actually, so, so, so the last portion, it's the voters, right? It's who, yeah. it's who actually own the units mm-hmm. from the aldermen perspective. But the real challenge here is that you have people who do live in the buildings who thought they would own these units forever right. and they don't want to be displaced. Mm-hmm. So, so what we've done very strategically and very authentically is said, you know, how you message to these people is very, very important. You have to understand that this is somebody's home. They thought they were going to live here. They thought they were going to retire here. You know, this is a legacy property for them, a legacy unit. 
and and going in and telling them that they have to sell it is a tough pill to swallow. So, you know, one of the things that I think has, and, and it speaks to to this, it also speaks to the way that we run our company. And when you treat it like a home and you don't treat it like a unit or an asset or or a property, for example, then then you have a different perspective and you're really able to to connect with these renters and in some ways connect with the developers and the people who are helping doing this to help people understand what they're truly building here. And, and that's how we always go about these kinds of conversations when we have to help developers understand why this is difficult for people to know why they can't afford this rent or why they have to move out and really trying to help people understand how important this is in somebody's life, regardless of what they're doing, buying, selling, renting, etc. Can we go back to the um, idea of using concessions to lease apartments? I've seen some very creative concessions offered, and I suspect that <laughs> concessions are very sticky where a lot of people might approach one month free and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this deal and then move in 12 months. But once you're in, you're kind of in. Do you guys have any data on that or anything light you can shed on, on that, uh, that concept? Of course. Concessions are an interesting topic. It comes up every conversation that we have with either a developer or a renter and and what what they mean and how how we manage it. I think that generally speaking, concessions are okay if they're done the right way and done strategically within the context of the goals for the developer. When you have a new lease-up building and you're offering concessions, there's no question you're going to be able to advance the velocity a little bit more. So it's a balance between offering concessions and, and vacancy and being able to truly understand where the goals align there. But the key is that you only offer concessions that when you go to renew the property are not going to be perceived as, I'm going to have to spend an exponential amount more to be able to stay in this building. So there's a couple of things to that. First is that the concession has to be offered upfront. So that means in the second month of rent, if it's a one-month concession, you get it for free and you don't pay for it. The rest of the time that you're living there, you're going to pay the regular market rent. Oh, so you're used to paying that market rent. So, so that's one of the keys that we really hammer home with developers is that you want to pay this upfront and that will alleviate the concern with somebody jumping. So along those lines, so that, that's the developer perspective, right? And then we talk about the renter perspective because we have, we have to play both, right? We have, we have to be involved on both sides. For the renter, it's how do you manage that? And if they really pay that, if they can afford to pay that second month, they can take that money, pay it to themselves, and then self-prorate, right? So they can pull that $200 difference out of the second month. In the, I'm sorry, put it in the second month. And then every month thereafter, in the course of a year, You've made enough, you know, you've done well, you've moved up in your company, you get a raise, there's a cost of living increase that you're able to afford that next time. The second portion is that when you go to renew, you can't gouge somebody tremendously. I mean, and that that's part of the challenge too, is that it's balancing how much can we increase the rent but keep people here. But there is an amount that somebody is willing to pay if you provided the highest level of service Nobody's going to move out of their apartment for 75 bucks or 100 right, bucks. Right. It, just, it just costs too much to, to move. People are going to move for three reasons. One is that they're getting relocated and they're just not going to stay there. Two is they're going to have a lifestyle change. Or three, you didn't provide the kind of living environment that 
is that they're seeing as a perceived value. So the concession really shouldn't have any impact in that overall renewal strategy if you manage it the right way. The other piece of concessions that we really talk to developers about is be strategic with them. There's no reason you have to offer a concession on every single apartment. There are premium units within every building, right? There are terraces. There are some units that have balconies. Maybe one tier has balconies and nothing else does. You have double sinks. You have incredible views. You have to re- you have penthouses. You have to be really strategic with those concessions and not just do a blanket concession strategy. And that, that takes nuance. That, take, that takes a strategic vision to be able to figure out how do we maximize these rents because those are the people that have that much more income. You will be able to increase those rents because you won't have any level of concession. And that's where all the money is. So these are all the factors that, that go into concessions. And then you just you can't do huge you can't jack the price up as high as you want to go and then do huge amounts of concessions and expect that you're going to retain 60% of your residents. It's just not going to happen. So if you want to play that game, you can, but you have you have to know what's going to come from it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Is it true that no one takes security deposits in Chicago? Nobody nobody knows what they're doing, that's for sure. <laughs> so so <laughs> Did that come from somewhere? Yeah, De- Devin mentioned that, and it was like a it was a shock to our system. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so it comes from the Chicago Residential Landlord and Tenant Ordinance that very, very heavily favors the renter, and it is a a very, very difficult ordinance to be able to take a security deposit and do all of the things that are required in that ordinance to make sure you are in compliance. We're talking about how you take the money, how you provide a receipt, where you deposit the money, when you pay interest, how you communicate with the tenant, what's in your lease, have you updated the disclosures? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And over time, we really moved away from taking a security deposit, moving fee, it's called a few different things, that really protects the, the, the landlord to the extent that, for the most part, people are not destroying their apartments. They're not, you know, they, they live there, it's their home. They're not, they're not abusing the place that they live. There's enough people that don't do excessive damage that it, that it works. There have been other products out there where you can buy a surety bond against, you know, against somebody moving in that, you know, kind of goes into a pool and, and destroy their apartment. Then you're fine. If it goes to 20, then, you know, you're going to have to pay a premium. So there's different ways around it. But no, for the most part, nobody is taking a security deposit in Chicago if they know what they're doing. So what fees are allowed and not allowed in terms of move in, move out out there? So, you know, a move in fee or admin fee, different people call it different, call it different things. It is permissible right now. There is some legislation that's getting discussed if, if it's going to continue. But that that move in or admin fee typically ranges anywhere between two hundred and fifty and six hundred dollars. The most the the most common number is between four hundred and five hundred dollars. And that will cover you know, the majority of people who aren't going to, to destroy their apartment. Within, you know, the other fees that we see in Chicago, so there's an application fee. You know, application fee is typically between $50 and $75. We have what's referred to as either a utility package or a bundled services fee. So a utility package is something where if you, you know, it's a flat rate based on a per unit type. So studio, one bedroom, two bedroom. Um, that covers your typically your heat, your air, your gas, your water, sewage. And then you really, what we've seen, the, the, the progression lately has been to include internet in that. 
internet is the most important feature for somebody moving into one of these high rises downtown, of course. Um, you know, most, you know, I would say we're getting to the point where 30 to 40% of people don't have cable anymore. They're streaming on internet. So we've really been advising our developers to move towards that one gig um, because that one gig is definitely a selling tool and can justify that utility or bundled services fee. So you know, th- those are really the fees up front. And then as far as what you need to actually secure an apartment, so there, there's two schools of thought in this, right? People will take that application fee and that move-in fee and that's it. And then not make somebody pay until the first month when they move in couple days before, right when they move in, they'll take either the prorated amount or they'll take the full full rent amount. Our program has really advised that we do want to take that first full month because we believe that you know we want to provide the, the best tenants that we possibly can. And people, if somebody quite honestly can't come up with a full month's rent at that time, um, you know, are they going to have challenges paying rent in the future? So so that's been our philosophy on on most of the lease up deals. There are there are variances within that. But but that's typically and that's it, right? There's no last month's rent. The consumer here, the renter, does not pay the broker fee. So, you know, that that always falls on the landlord or developer to pay that actual broker fee. And that is a very, very different model for Chicago as compared to many of the major metros like New York or San Francisco, or it sounds like Boston a little bit, where you know the, the broker does get paid a, a fee here. I guess going along that topic, moving along the internet is a must if you're going to have that fee built into it and and use it as a selling point. We have talked quite a, quite a few times on the podcast here about building amenities and whether that's in apartments or in larger condo buildings. What are some amenities that your tenants, that you feel your tenants definitely ask for? And what are some amenities that people... Never, usually don't never use yeah. or never use. <laughs> Developers are like, "Oh, we have to have this," and you're like, "No, like, you don't." <laughs> like, 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 like the go- like the golf simulator or the media room, <laughs> yeah. so or the or the the bowling alley. So, listen, I, you know, my philosophy is that it's not so much about the amenity itself; it's how you program that amenity to create a sense of community. And and that's the most important piece when designing and creating an amenity suite of an amenity suite, if you will, or amenity programming, is that you know when you create an open environment that is encouraging people to meet each other, to play together, to eat, to work, whatever that is, that's the most important aspect. What they're doing within those spaces is secondary. It is about different gathering spaces to bring people together and understand that like. Bringing them together doesn't mean they're necessarily talking, right? I mean, if you go into a co-working space in any of these buildings, you see people on their computers, you see people on their phones, but it's a shared experience. And that's what amenities are all about. It's about a shared experience. So you have to create comfortable furniture. You have to line the walls with the right kind of artwork. You have to have different libraries and nooks and books and things like that that give people the opportunity to come together and share and living there. So that, that's really the overall theme. I would say the other theme that we see in amenities is service and how it relates to technology. So, you know, again, we, I spoke to the, the Amazon one-click world that we live in right now. People are on their phones all day long. The buildings that are really getting ahead of it, the buildings that are, that are you know, going to be sticky and, and kind of help create the sense of community that meets the needs where their renters are, at least in this particular demographic, 
are investing in building apps where they're creating a sense of community that allows people to talk to each other, be able to sell things or, hey, I'm having a party or does anybody know a you know somebody that can help hang this TV, those sorts of things. And then how that relates to you know access to the building. When you're walking into to the building and you are coming in and imagine coming into the building and everybody, and based on data, because they have this app, they know that you are going to order food from Grubhub in that, like right when you get upstairs. So you actually get something from Grubhub that says, hey, you know, welcome home. Are you interested in ordering this right now? So one of the, the technologies that we've actually invested in and are partnered with is something called Rise Buildings. Just as Devin kind of had you talk to me, I'm going to give you a name that I think you can talk to as well that I think would be an interesting person for this podcast. Uh, his name is Prasan Kale. He started this company called Rise Buildings. And they're really starting to develop these kinds of apps that are, that are just spectacularly changing the way that renters are, are interacting with their property manager, with their buildings, and having that kind of technology first amenity to, to create that. So that, that really, again, it's a, it's a long-winded answer around like, you can build a gym, you can build co-working, you can have a pool, you can have those things, but it's all about how you make it a, a part of the renter's life versus just the physical space. It's really interesting because you know we've we've had a couple different developers on that do apartment that do primarily apartment larger apartment buildings and some of them are gung ho about amenities and some of them have come on and said you know what I care more about spending money on creating much higher end actual apartments and foregoing the amenity spaces to bring in that higher end tenant because you know if you're in the city and you know you're making enough money and you're spending enough money on rent you know you're going to spend you're going to spend the money to e- going down the street to equinox to the gym etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's very interesting to see both perspectives on that type of you know fee- on those features yeah i think i think it, de- it depends on the building right if you're able to create the kind of gym environment that will match what you would get at equinox and bring in trainers or bring in someone like a Lula Fit who is providing amenity programming for those types of buildings. There's another one you could, you can talk to that that those are the kinds of amenities that really do make sense because then you can talk about cost savings. You can say, hey, you don't have to belong to that gym anymore. You can have this gym. But the idea of putting you know two treadmills in a building and saying you have a gym that's a box check that that you know we're just we don't subscribe to that. Okay. Like I think totally. you you know yeah. you have to there, there's a better way to use that space make it a make it a maker's room make it you know check out some some different equipment that you wouldn't get otherwise have some electric scooters like whatever you can do there that that but if you're gonna you can't just say you have a gym because you have two treadmills you have to go all in and I think that you know outdoor space is one too that that everybody really wants to have in Chicago you get to use it like four months out of the year yeah, Boston so, as well yeah. yeah so you know like outdoor space is usually a very expensive venture but but it is it is again when you have those summertime days and you can create that and create those kinds of memories where people can go up and grill and talk to each other those are those are really important so I mentioned co-working I mentioned grilling and and the outdoor spaces I think those are the two that from a physical standpoint are are really important. You know, and pools are tough. Pools are very expensive. You know, having a water feature as opposed to a pool is fine. You know, nobody is, most people are not swimming laps in the Olympic sized <laughs> pool at their, at their apartment building right now. 
that, you know, I've seen, I've seen pools where they're just like two sets of like staircases that people are just hanging out on and, and talking to each other. So, you know, it's, it's really just being creative with that space that you have and, and being cognizant of how, how it creates community. Yeah. Nice. I, li- I like the idea of buildings having a, um, being Instagrammable or, or having some place on that building. Uh, for, yeah, that, for that IG moment, but um, for sure, yeah. cool. Hey, I think we're getting about that time. I guess we. What, what, so one more, one more question. I wanted. Uh, yeah, and I, to. is it okay if I do one more as well, Mark? You're fine. <laughs> we're at fifty minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, so you know, it seems like you. You, you, can, you guys, you guys, you guys can edit it. So you seem to primarily work in Class A or working with Class A buildings. If for our listeners out there that invest in real estate, have rentals, et cetera, that might have a class B or a class C building that they're looking to make upgrades to, to either get them to the next next level, push their rents, et cetera. What are some of the things that, you know, a a developer and investor can do to significantly create value in their building and maybe move, bring them to the next level that's not going to cost them an arm and a leg and they're not going to have to gut the units, et cetera? That's where service comes in. I mean, I think so let's talk about the units first, right? You have to get the units to a place where they are going to compete with the Class A market. It is not tremendously expensive. I mean, it's definitely capital improvement, don't get me wrong. But it's not tremendously expensive these days to put LVT flooring and instead of carpet, put a you know uh, a um, a quartz countertop in and do some stainless steel appliances and refinish cabinets. Those costs have come down so dramatically lately. We see it in the condo deconversion space that there are ways you can do that so that you can at least play ball and be a part of it. Because if you're not doing that right now, you're going to get stuck behind in a sea and, and never come back. So you have to be willing to do that within a certain subset of units. And, and be able to invest that kind of capital. When it comes to the amenities, that's really about service and technology. Because again, those are things that are, we'll call them aspirational for that demographic that wants to rent those kinds of apartments. So if they can live in a building that has a nice kitchen, a decent bathroom, but have all the same kind of tech that a brand new class A does, because that's not hardware that's that's software that's you know apps that's um you know it can be keyless entry it can be nest thermostats if you're able to make those kinds of changes those are things that go a long way and and we talked about 1g internet before you know one gig internet upgrading the internet those are the things that are most important for people when it comes to convenience for that aspirational renter who isn't going to you know afford the full class a and, and you know spend that kind of money but they do want to live in a solid location, a prime location. They want to have a nice apartment to call home and they want to feel like they have the latest and greatest when it comes to technology. You got me thinking when you were mentioning, you know, today how the amenities are are different and the whole Grubhub experience. So then it just got me thinking, you know, the old apartment building would have like a doorman, they'd get your mail, they'd accept your packages. We obviously have Amazon lockers. I'm curious, do you have any properties with Amazon lockers? And then on top of that, with all of these food delivery services, are you seeing anything in the realm of having a an area where like a food delivery service can come and drop off your groceries so you don't have to go shopping? You just come home and you've got your groceries in an area, some refrigerated, some not, or is this just me being me? <laughs> no, no, you're you're not you're not just being you. I don't know you that well, but you know it's uh, the 
Yes. I mean, I think, again, that speaks to service. That speaks to all the different grocery delivery companies that are out there ordering food on Amazon, etc. Deliveries have been a huge challenge for developers, especially in the older buildings that didn't plan for it. In the, the newer buildings, you have to make space for it. And the number of deliveries is only going to increase exponentially. So how you plan those package receiving rooms. But I think some of the things that we're seeing on, on the highest end class A buildings are different units having increased rents, right? I mean, whether it's baked in or not, because of the service element that they get. So that would include when your package comes, somebody delivering it to your unit. When you have food delivery, somebody putting it away in your fridge. Those sorts of service-based things, people are definitely willing to pay for if they don't have to go to the grocery store to get it because they don't want to have a car, right? I mean, that, that speaks to the, to the world that we're living in where, where only 30% of our renters have cars right now. And you go by different unit types and that goes down lower and lower and lower to where like studios, it's getting down like 15% of people have cars. So the more convenient you can make the, the service and, and do that, there is an opportunity to increase rent on offering those types of services. So basically, in lieu of a uh, refrigeration room, you just have somebody that puts it in your fridge. That's even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and listen, we, we have the Amazon, we do have the Amazon lockers to answer your question. If it's an Amazon delivery person, they put it in like 60% of the time. Oh, jeez. Yeah. If it's not an Amazon person, they put it in the locker 10% of the time. And then it becomes a, a operational challenge to figure out how do you how do you use those lockers. So we've seen, you know, the lockers do have a place. It depends on the building, but you know, door staff is really about being a concierge and providing that service for people who are there and guests. But there are services and, and things out there that are really trying to solve those problems so that it's not an operational expense to be able to take in all the different packages that, that come into a building. All right, cool. Hey, I think it's about that time. We'll jump into a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. So we'll throw a term okay. out a concept. You tell us as to whether you think it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. <laughs> and you can provide some All quick right. context uh, on your response. So I'll kick it off with them. Um, children's playrooms. Oh, man. Overrated usually. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends on the building. There's very few buildings where that is going to make a major impact for somebody. I won't tell my three-year-old nephew you said that. <laughs> I'm talking about to the, to the bottom line, right? No, of I course. Think <laughs> the, the, on, the only place I've seen it done really, really well, it's actually a developer. I'm going to give him a nod right now. It's Broder Development out of Boston. Yeah. So you guys know Broder? I've, I've been so to Boston. Broder, so, 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 yeah. So Broder's building in Chicago. We work with them. They, they're building a brand new, gorgeous building called Norweta. That building has a gym. And within the gym is where the child's playroom is. So people can come and work out and then have their kid right there in the playroom and see that. That's really smart. Brilliant. That's cool. That is brilliant. Yeah. They are super smart, very thoughtful developers. We love working with them. Nice. Yeah, we'll have to check them out and, and look a little closer. Going kind of on the concession side of things, multi-year leases. Underappreciated 100%. This is a huge portion of our strategy. Because when you have long-term leases, you do two very important things. One is that you help create that sense of community that I've talked about so much. The second is that you are minimizing the number of units that will come up during expirations. In turn, 
you are able to raise rents because less units will come back online. So we've, we've done traditionally somewhere between 25 and 40% long-term leases in all of our different lease-ups. And it is majorly impactful in everybody's ability to increase rents the next year. So just to follow up on that, I know it's not part of the game. Are you saying, do you have any, <laughs> do you have any leases that are more than two years? Because obviously, you know, if you sign a bad tenant in there, I don't know what the, the courts are like to get them out, but over here, it's not that great. It's not great here either. We've, I mean, we've done a handful of deals that are probably three years or, you know, kind of one-off things, but the, the max is usually about two years. Got it. You know, our average lease term within our company is actually 15 months because we pay so much attention to the long-term leases. There are some projects that it can be as high as, as 18 or 19, depending on timing. Time of year matters a lot too. It's so different in Chicago and Boston. You guys, almost everybody moves September 1st. Yeah. Here, the move date is really between like April 1st and September and October 1st. And the busy season is February through August. We call September 1st here, Austin Christmas. It's where all the, yeah. co- the colleges are. And if you walk the sidewalks, there's usually... a lot of treasures. Yeah, a lot exactly. of treasures. I was there. I was there right after September first once, and yeah. I saw what was what was going on. Yeah. I was blown away. Mess. Christmas mess. How about furnished apartments slash Airbnb? Give me the three again. It's overrated. <laughs> overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? <laughs> uh, appropriately rated right now uh, with the potential to be underrated because I do believe there's a place for this in in the current landscape. I think what's most important for Airbnb and short-term and co-living and all of this kind of you know, alternative housing, if you will, is how it's messaged to the community, whether that includes people who live there already or people who aren't or, or, or people in the neighborhood to help everybody understand that this is part of it. This is part of the landscape that we live in now. And if handled the right way, because like everything else, can be accepted and, and, and be okay. I'm all about hiring a professional operator. If you're going to go that route, it's about bringing a professional operator in to execute on those kinds of strategies, not someone who's never really done it before. Last one from me, inbound marketing. We underrated. It is, it is the entirety behind our strategy. It takes a tremendous commitment to create the right kind of inbound marketing that's going to be compelling to, to drive a business. You have to commit to content. You have to commit to marketing. You have to commit to learning new things every day because that, that business changes every day. You have to be willing to put the work in to create an inbound content marketing strategy that will pay dividends for years to come, but it does not come easy. We've been working on this since 2007, believing wholeheartedly in SEO, SEM, and then very quickly inbound marketing you know, especially with with HubSpot, and we've been working with HubSpot for a number of years. Obviously, another Boston-based company, and that inbound marketing strategy, the dedication of that inbound marketing strategy, is what has driven a tremendous amount of our our lead generation platform and success. Cool. Can you give us a quick example or two of inbound marketing? Sure. So, inbound marketing is is blog creation. So, you know, blogging is inbound marketing. You're you're creating blogs that people are interested in reading about. Especially that you know where where we've had the most success on our blog is for relocation clients, creating the kind of content that they're looking for um, that helps them understand the Chicago landscape, 
or you know the difference between an apartment and a condo. Those kinds of things are, are really important for folks who are moving from from uh, from out of out of state and, and really understanding things. The other thing that we do from an inbound marketing standpoint is we we have a lot of thought leadership. We create white papers. We take the data, analyze it, and make sure that we put it out there for everybody to understand. Because I believe wholeheartedly that a sharing economy, a collaborative economy, a collaborative spirit of things is going to move everybody forward faster. And and we want to learn from others and we want others to learn from us. And that just makes the world a better place. How about uh, virtual showings? Virtual showings, I'm going to say... Like VR? I was thinking more FaceTime, like someone's relocating to Chicago. Or Skype. How do you do that? If they can figure out how to install Skype. (laughs) So I think it's underappreciated right now. It, it's important. I think, I think FaceTime is more important than VR right now. You would have talked to me a year and a half ago. I would have been all in on VR. Like I was on that bandwagon. <laughs> we were the first people to do a pre-leasing center with goggles. Oh, wow. We were really excited about it. And it worked and, and it, was, it was helpful. But I think there, there's, there's no replacement for seeing an apartment. Um, and I think that FaceTime and you know another thing that we do is we work with a company called Real Link. That that does a lot of um, kind of virtual tours and recording apartment tours. Um, we believe in Matterports and kind of those those things. Those things help people feel like they are at home. The best way I can describe that is when you invest in creating those kinds of assets, the the marketing assets. When somebody actually comes for their showing, it feels like a second showing instead of it being the first time. And you're that much closer to the sale when you're able to do that. Do you guys require or do most of your developers? Build model units during your during the construction to show start showing apartments. Model units are tremendously underrated. You need model units. People do not have a tremendous imagination. We spend a lot of time working with developers, working with designers, and take Devin Grace to create the best kinds of models that when somebody walks in that unit, they see things that are familiar to them that are within their life already and know that that's you know, that they're going to be welcome here because that's how the model is designed. The other thing that models do is it helps with more challenging floor plans. You can model something and help somebody understand how they would use, how they would set up their furniture, how they would use the space that you really can't do without actually putting the furniture in there. So we believe a lot in models. We actually offer that as part of a service to help design models. We work with Devin um, and and it's just, it's it's a big key to the success of a lease up. I'd imagine that a model unit is a good feedback loop as well, because if you are showing the model unit early enough before the rest of the building's built out and somebody, you know, the feedback is unanimous in terms of, or, or, you know, majority for including or excluding something, you can kind of make that change on the fly before all, all the rest of the work is done. And yeah. So what, what we do with models is we transition models throughout the lease up and we transition it based on data that we've gotten from what's renting, what's not renting, um, that when we ultimately transition a model, it is very material to the strategy and, and, and ultimately very successful in getting some of those tiers that maybe hadn't been renting yet to actually rent. So using the data behind models and, and how things are renting is, is a big part of how we handle this. Excellent. Hey, can I do one more real quick? I thought of something. <laughs> yeah, one more. How about um, like smart fixtures or smart appliances, that sort of thing? So smart tech is... Again, it's kind of right in the middle right now, but here's what I will say about smart technology. Smart technology is the 
hardwood flooring of five years ago, the wash and the washer dryer of 10 years ago. Once you have it, you're never going to go back. So as more and more people get smart technology, especially thermostats and smart locks, where they're going to have that convenience factor, they can set the temperatures that when they walk in their apartment, they know they know they're going to be comfortable. That they can get that dog walker in by just hitting a code on on the building. They're never going to move to another apartment that doesn't have that. Similar to how like once you have hardwood floors or custom closets, you're never moving to something that doesn't have that again. And certainly a washer dryer or dishwasher follows that same suit. So that's where we are with smart technology right now. You know, I read a statistic that one out of 10 new construction buildings are putting smart locks on right now. I anticipate that number will be three out of 10 within two years and five out of 10 within four. So you're going to start seeing that more and more over the next number of years where it will become almost ubiquitous in, in new construction. I'll take that bet and double it. I think that they're so ubiquitous and inexpensive now, smart yeah. locks, that the, that could happen quicker. I agree. And the, th- the thermostat's a big one too, because it's not just Nest. Yeah. It's Echo B and all these others. That mm. it doesn't, it doesn't, the brand is, it's not a brand loyal situation. It's more about, can I control my thermostat from my phone? <laughs> and once <laughs> I can do that, I'm never not going to be able to do that again. Yeah, yeah. I feel that way. Agreed. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Aaron. I, I mean, it's it, right. we've learned a ton um, about the apartment space and we really appreciate you taking the time. We know you're super busy. So, you know, once again, th- thank you for, thank you for all your. Hey, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. If folks want to follow you guys or get a hold of you, how can they do it? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, the best place is on LinkedIn. I'm an Aaron Galvin. To follow our company, it's at Luxury Living Chicago on Instagram. We are constantly storying and adding new content. And our website is luxurylivingchicago.com. You can learn a whole lot about what's happening in the Chicago apartment space. Awesome. Super. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Aaron.